I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, November 15th, 2001. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we discuss with author Cynthia Barnett how to get ourselves out of the water crisis we've created. And we look at the burgeoning maker movement sweeping the country. Now, let's take a look at what's new in science. Susan, what do you have? Tonight at the Denver Café Scientifique, you can learn about an ambitious plan that ties together research about many kinds of human-caused environmental change, ranging from climate, land use, and invasive species, to greenhouse gases and air pollution. The project is called the National Ecological Observatory Network, or NEON for short. David Schimmel, who was on the show in July 2010, is NEON's chief scientist. He says NEON's goal is to provide a nationwide picture of our changing ecology. We tried to say, okay, how do we tie them all together? How do we tie all of these questions together so that we understand both the causes of environmental change and also the ecological responses to climate change? And how do we do it in a way that allows us to get a sense of how the whole continent is responding and not just individual project sites? NEON is endorsed by the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, and NOAA, that would be National Oceanic and Atmospheric Observatory, and the U.S. Geological Survey. You can find out more by visiting the website neon.com, that's N-E-O-N.com, or come to tonight's Denver Cafe Sci. The free event is at the Wincoop Brewery in lower downtown Denver. It starts at 6.30, but get, gathering fills up pretty fast, so it's smart to arrive by 6.00. Have you ever wondered why we yawn? It's probably not just a sign of boredom. It's maybe not even to get an oxygen boost. Two researchers, Gary Hack and Andrew Gallup, think that yawning actually helps regulate the temperature of our brain. And they've got some evidence to back this up. Gallup at Princeton found that the brain temperatures of rats increased immediately before yawning and decreased immediately afterward. He also studied two women who experienced unusual bouts of yawning. 15 bouts every day that lasted 5 to 45 minutes. Both of them showed signs of problems regulating their brain temperature. One of these women took her temperature before and after yawning episodes and, just like the rats, showed a significant drop in temperature afterward. The researchers think that this cooling works by triggering our sinuses, and specifically the maxillary sinus, which is on either side of our nose. They say that when we yawn, the maxillary sinuses flex like a bellows, which, in turn, cools our brain. Gallup says that bouts of excessive yawning often accompany seizures in epileptic patients and the onset of pain in people with migraines. The researchers predict that we might be able to use excessive yawning as a diagnostic tool in identifying dysfunction of brain temperature regulation. So, next time you yawn, think about cooling your brain. <laughs> I will indeed. And on an historical note, 124 years ago today, the first U.S. patent was issued for the dry cell battery. Eleven years later, in 1889, the D-cell battery, which in fact we're still using today, went on the consumer market.
You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Much of the green revolution in the U.S., from LEED-certified building construction to recycling trash, has missed a critical issue. That would be water. Just look at all these water-sucking Kentucky bluegrass lawns spread across the country. And in fact, across the nation, the lawns absorb more water than corn and all other feed grain crops combined. A new book on water looks at how much of the country has squandered its way to water scarcity. Cynthia Barnett is a journalist and author of Blue Revolution, Unmaking America's Water Crisis. She calls the U.S. one of the most water-wasting places on the planet. But in her book, she also draws from positive examples of water conservation in the country. And she proposes a new water ethic. Cynthia's on the line from Portland, Oregon to share stories and insights from her book. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for having me on. So, first of all, um, I I pulled from your book that factoid about the overwatered lawns, and I think you mentioned that a a NASA remote sensing shows that lawn turf in the U.S. covers more than 63,000 square miles, more land area than Georgia, Illinois, or New York. Um, Is that true? Yes, I, I actually interviewed a NASA scientist who used satellite imagery to try and figure out how much of our nation is covered with turf grass. You know, everything from highway medians to backyards and soccer fields. And she added up 63,240 square miles of turf grass covering the country which, as you mentioned, is an area larger than most individual American states. So in Blue Revolution, I call all this turf our 51st state. That's a bad and we're, It is, and we're, the, the thing is we're pouring large amounts of, of potable water on, on many of these lawns, you know, water that we have treated at great expense to meet federal drinking water standards where we're pulling it up from increasingly stressed aquifers and surface water sources, treating it at our great expense to meet drinking water standards, and then pouring it on grass. We also, of course, flush our toilets with this same potable water. So the, the call in Blue Revolution is a new way of thinking about water and a new water ethic. It, it argues that we've really reached the point of uh, needing to live with water in a new way, much like, as you, as you mentioned, we've, we've embraced other parts of, uh, of the green craze. And obviously um, the lawns and the consumer end of it is, is a tiny piece. It's important, but, but a small. But first, just for the big picture, when you talk about America's so-called illusion of water abundance, meaning that we've, it's been just so easy to tap, to channel, and we don't pay enough for it? What, what's, the, what's the illusion there? Yes, that's exactly right. So, so the conveyance of clean water into our cities and the movement of wastewater out was really among the greatest scientific achievements of the 20th century and, of course, saved countless lives. We, we really owe... Uh, the water engineers, uh, huge gratitude for that. But I'm arguing that that great achievement now has grown into an entitlement. We have now created this illusion of abundance so that even there in Colorado, for example, as 
stressed as your water sources are, Kentucky bluegrass is still the most widely used turf grass in Colorado. So is it in, is it in it's, fact the most water-guzzling turf? I thought our, our city has a little demo lawn area, actually, and I thought it was saying that they're all about the same. Well, um, there are many other types of, of turf and native ground covers that, that use hardly any water and, and really don't need much at all. And that's all part of this epic, is, is thinking about how to live in ways that don't drain freshwater resources. But, but back to that illusion, so where you are, where I, I actually live in Florida, although I'm in Portland right now, speaking tonight at, at a science pub, similar to the one you just oh, mentioned. Great. But our water sources are stressed from coast to coast, and we're still living as if we have plenty. There's plenty for everything. It's there every time we turn on the tap. Um, we, we use as much as we want on lawns. Um, agriculture, at least, at least in the eastern half of the country, still relies on really inefficient irrigation, such as flood irrigation. So we're still living as if we have plenty. And, and that's the idea, that this is really an illusion, and that if we all understood a little bit better where our water comes from, what is the health of those sources, where water goes after we use it, um, we, we wouldn't be living under this illusion anymore. So would we live less under the illusion if we had to pay a higher price? I know, you know, economists are sort of mulling it, ecologists as well. Some cities do it differently from others, but it seems like it's just too cheap, would you say? Susan, I think that's a great point. I think price is part of the answer. The, the problem is that e economists tend to say, Price is the answer to everything, and I, I think we've seen in um, you know in the petroleum issue, for example. Yes, when we have to pay a bit more, when we have to pay more per gallon of gas, we do drive a little less, but that hasn't transformed. It still hasn't transformed our society, right? We're still we're still um, dominated by by cars and highway use. It's not really a transformative thing. Price. I think the transformation comes when we embrace an ethic, and, and that is the underlying argument in this book, that if we, if we appreciated water um, more than we do, we would come to use less, respect it. And, but yes, price is definitely part of the answer, but I just don't think it's the only answer. Some people really see it as the be-all and end-all, and I, I think it's a much bigger picture than that. So when you talk about a water ethic, it sounds very kumbaya and sort of grassroots, right. if we all appreciate it more. I mean, on the one hand, it sounds great philosophically, but practically, down to the brass tacks, don't we need just more regulations, higher price, not huge, costly projects <laughs> in, a, in, in a few seconds? Could you address that? Well, I argue that, um, you know, take government regulation, for example. Our environmental history has, has proven that that doesn't work. For example, California is still really overtapping groundwater all over the state. Um, you in Colorado have shown that the courts aren't necessarily the answer. We, we know that large infrastructure isn't the answer. I just men mentioned that economics isn't the entire 
answer. So a water ethic can be something that's very tangible. And I go to other parts of the world. I travel to Australia and Singapore and, and the Netherlands for Blue Revolution and describe countries where a national focus on water and a real ethic among citizens and industry has led to dramatic changes in how water has managed. So, yes, this is it is definitely touchy-feely, and it's also tangible. Well, thank you so much. I know um, people can read more about it in the book, The yes. Blue Revolution, Unmaking America's Water Crisis. Cynthia, thanks so much for coming to How on Earth. You can learn more about the book by going to CynthiaBarnett.net. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. The so-called maker movement is sweeping the country. It's characterized by people who'd rather make things than buy them. Or if not that, rip the covers off the thing they, things they buy and tweak them to their liking. To support this movement, there are maker magazines, national maker conferences, and hacker spaces where like-minded folks can congregate. As a bit of evidence for how far this movement has gone, the editor of Make Magazine was honored at the White House last week as a champion of change. One of the enablers of the maker movement is Spark Fun Electronics, right here in Boulder. We have with us in the studio Jeff Branson in the Department of Education at Spark Fun. Jeff, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Jeff, the, the, the term maker movement is, is kind of amorphous. Uh, can you start off by uh, trying to define it a bit? Well, amorphous is a really good word to use in terms of definition. People are starting to build their own stuff that used to be reserved for kind of corporate and university scientific America. We're seeing people doing, for example, weather balloon launches to the edge of space using microcontrollers, GPS, temperature and barometric pressure sensors, buying surplus weather balloons from places like eBay, and then sending this stuff into the stratosphere. Um, about 100,000 feet is the average height that we're seeing. That's a great example. We're seeing on a small smaller scale, we've had high school students come into SparkFun carrying things like a glove that's enabled with electronic sensors that actually decodes sign language into text. So that's another great example. Um, I'm trying to think of some recent projects that we've seen that really typify it here. I, some of the Burning Man crowd crosses over. We see a lot of performance art that's connected with it, uh, installation art pieces involving light and sound and actual physical movement from participants attending these things. So there's a broad range of participation and a broad range of kind of technical skill and different areas of craft and electronics, social interactivity. Uh, there's some web-enabled stuff that goes with all this, and uh, there's a plethora of websites that have come up, and the maker fairs are another example of all that. So let's, let's home in on the educational aspect, which is that's a part that's uh, near near and dear to, to your heart. Um, so so how is, uh, you know, I think I've heard you say it's revolutionizing, revolutionizing education. Now, what, t tell us a bit more about that. How, how would that, uh, beyond just specific examples of projects? Well... What we see is that as hardware grows, as the capability grows in hardware, what used to be 
graduate level computer science is now starting to take place in the high schools and middle schools and even elementary schools at some level. We're seeing local schools who are actually building their own instrumentation. And what are uh, some of the schools that are involved in this? Uh, there are some Douglas County schools. There are several schools in Jefferson County. Warren Technical Education Center in Lakewood has a big block curriculum designed around microcontrollers and physical computing, actually embedding computers that read things from the physical environment. So they're developing curriculum around that. We have one or two schools in, in Boulder Valley who are working with it. Uh, we have a lot of individual teachers who are using it to bolster curriculum, who are working in, in maybe areas like biology or physics, who are starting to build their own instrumentation and doing data logging with it. Okay, so, so you've talked a lot about uh, hardware, basically. I see you brought in a, a little blue square uh, circuit board. How, how does this uh, help the, uh, uh, the revolution? This is the Arduino microcontroller, and a microcontroller is a single computer on a small board about the size of the palm of my hand. Uh, the typical blue Arduino thing we're starting to see everywhere. It's revolutionized this whole area of embedded computing. On the chip is uh, uh, the functionality to talk to USB through your regular laptop or your desktop. There are ports where you can plug wires in and out and you can configure these ports either as an input or an output. So an input would be a push button or a temperature sensor. An output would be a motor, a servo, a solenoid linear actuator. So you can take these boards and you can write code to them on your laptop or on your desktop and then it will interpret the code and continue to do this stuff in your absence. So you're uh, describing some pretty fancy stuff. The, the hardware and software to make it go must be, uh, must be pretty expensive. Well, that's really interesting. The board that we're looking at right here is under $30. So the cost is really, really cheap. The board that, that we're looking at right now is eight times more powerful and eight times faster than the board that put men on the moon. And it costs, I think we figured, about one two hundred thousandth to produce. Hmm. Okay, and uh, and the software, I understand uh, the open source is something the maker movement embraces. Uh, uh, tell us a bit about that. Uh, we're really all about open source, and for the listeners who haven't heard about open source, open source is the idea that the source code behind any program is available for anybody to edit as they need to for their particular needs. If you called a large software manufacturer, Micro X, for example, and asked them for the source code for their let's say, word processing program, they would say, fine, it's a $20,000 fee for that development license. In the open source movement, typified by Linux, we see people making the source code available for free, so you can alter that. So we've taken it one step further, and it's not just us. There are a number of, of companies around the country who are doing this. And we, the development environments, the programming environments are free. The companion environments, things like the processing environment at Processing ORG, which socket to these microcontrollers, they're free. So you can alter the source code. The actual programming environments are free. So basically all you pay for is the hardware. It's a very different model in terms of the vendor model. Okay. Uh, these days, people are uh, very interested in jobs. Uh, is there an overlap of the maker movement and, uh, and employment? Well, you, I, there, there's been some talk about the Obama administration and things like the Advanced Manufacturing Project and the STEM initiatives support a lot of new jobs. STEM is? Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So we see a lot of development in terms of jobs in these areas. There's a lot of funding for it, and it is the innovation that kind of fuels American business. This is the knowledge behind the hard products. Hmm. Okay. And for what about people that uh, that aren't interested in tech, but can this help them with perhaps uh, uh, dis- disabled people or, or things like that? One of the things that we're seeing is that people are taking these microcontrollers and they're building projects which people with other disabil- with disabilities or, or different abilities are able to leverage this technology. I was mentioning the, the glove that interprets sign language into text is a great example of that. We have a school right now that's working on a project for the disabled with bowling, and they're driving that all with the microcontroller that's sitting in front of us right now. Oh, okay. So, so how would uh, somebody, you suggest somebody get started out with this, or if someone has a budding inventor on their holiday gift list, uh, you know, how how, how could somebody get going? Oh, well, I um, I have a, a certain favorite, and that's SparkFun. But Make Magazine is a wonderful place to start. Make Magazine is kind of an umbrella of all of the Make movement. So you get catapult projects. You'll get some electronics projects, uh, yogurt making, and, and a whole bunch of different stuff. There's We can be accessed through SparkFun.com. There's Adafruit Industries in New York, That's and, and you can web search Adafruit and get them. There's a if you put in make into Google, you'll get months worth of material. Okay. Well thank you. That was Jeff Branson of Spark Fun Electronics. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Tom McKinnon who also co-produced today's show with Beth Bartell. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music from Mahmood Band. And thanks to Shelley Schlender for contributing a headline and to Ted Burnham for running the board. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and find us there. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bartel. <laughs>